This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. Hello, everyone. It's so good to see you, to be here with you. I missed you. I missed you. Uh, it was good to have time off, but I missed you. And uh, as always, a lot has happened in the last couple of weeks. You know, there's, of course, the vaccines, vaccine rollout, and um, the spate of attacks on people of Asian descent. The Derek Chauvin trial, Donta Wright's killing, Michigan, Georgia, on and on and on. And in the midst of it all, some of us uh, deliberately, deliberately take time to turn inward, right? to, to create space, to feel to feel what comes up as we go about our days, to look closely, to see carefully, and to do our best to work with what is in front of us skillfully. And I was thinking, you know, that maybe um, every generation thinks, you know, this is the most trying time and every generation is trying in its own way. And so we have to have tools to navigate, right, the difficulty. And also ways to appreciate the beauty, you know, the magnificence of life. That, that post that I did last week uh, really was that, you know, finding in the midst of... Um, such uh, turmoil, uh, still such beauty. And the, the, the fact that we as human beings kind of relentlessly turn towards it. And I think that is uh, uh, a big part of why we, um, we're still here, really. And I was thinking um, of, of Shantideva, you know, the way of the Bodhisattva, and how he, you know, in the first chapter, he um, really devotes the whole thing to gratitude and reverence. And I think, you know, what would this world be like if we each could start our day that way, in that spirit of gratitude, of reverence, of love and appreciation? You know, if policemen turn to their wives their partners each morning and express their love and appreciation for them, for their children, you know, for their own lives, instead of, of being trapped in these cycles, you know, of fear and protection. Because there's another kind of protection, and that is what we're developing together.
Nunun, I hadn't taken a real vacation in a couple of years, but I hadn't taken two consecutive weeks in, I don't know, more than 15 years. It was delicious, you know, to move at another rhythm, right? That is not dictated by schedules and deadlines and tasks to do, money to make. And there were two weeks, you know, filled with, with life, you know, ordinary, very ordinary life, but a lot of life, you know, spent quite a bit of time with people outside. And I spent time outside much more than I do during a regular week. I went for long walks, went to the museum, applied for jobs, had minor surgery, you know, just life. And you really, you feel yourself differently when there's space around you, right? You know, I wasn't just going from one thing to the next, but was really, was really very consciously moving through space and time. And I've mentioned this before, but you know, I've been, I've been sitting with and attending teachings by a couple of women teachers in the insight tradition. And this is really one of the things that I continue to be struck by. The, the, the spaciousness and the warmth of their, of their teaching and their, um, their groundedness, their groundedness. You know, I hear them speak and I think to myself, they know what they're talking about because they've lived it. You know, they're not speaking from what they know, but from where they live. And they're rooted, they're rooted in land and in lineage. And it was a part of a retreat and I, just, and I, and I left it, you know, adding the, the name of Brooklyn, right, to, to my name and pronouns, the indigenous name, Lenape. It's, it's, it's the land of the original people is their name who were pushed out by European colonizers, 18th century. And so I'm thinking, you know, so I'm sitting here in my small room, in my small apartment, in my small building in New York City. I'm sitting in the middle, in the middle of this historical stream on what was Native American land. And acknowledging that fact reminds me that I'm part of that stream. You know, I was thinking of the week, my week of transmission, you know, when I received Dharma transmission. And, and there's a week when you're really, I mean, you're in a room, quite literally, for most of the week. And you're just doing prostrations over and over and over again to the lineage. The men, the women who have devoted their lives and, and historical and mythical who have devoted their lives to the Dharma, to being clear and to being free. And, and how suffused I felt by that lineage in a way that, you know, I mean, I had felt before, but not like that. When, when, when you're doing hundreds of prostrations a day, it's, I mean, it's in your body, it's in your cells. And um, one of the teachers brought up, you know, the, the word sati that we use for mindfulness. You can translate it as, as calling to mind, but she said it very nicely. She said it's to, to remember. 
to bring together these different members, these different, these different parts, disparate parts, right? So to, to, to recognize that we're all part of this one vast body. Because, you know, in general, you know, in Western spiritual practice, although we do it, we do do it in community, it tends to be still quite individual in focus, right? We, we go on retreat to realize ourselves so we can do some good in the world. But we're never alone. And no one ever realizes themselves alone. Not even the Buddha, who is, who is very much a part of a lineage of seekers. And so I try to remember that, you know, that when I'm speaking the Dharma, I'm not, it's just not just me speaking. And if I'm, if I'm doing it half decently, you know, that I'm bringing into this room, this digital room, all of the various strands, you know, all of the, the various um, threads of the web of life, you know, this Indian lineage, Asian lineage, Chinese, Japanese, then American, male and female, neither male nor female. And I think of, I was thinking again of that, the, the echo, the kind of antiphon that we use in our liturgy, right? The old Buddhas, all Buddhas throughout space and time, or space-time, as one of my friends says, given what we know. All bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, all the enlightenment beings, all of the great beings, Buddhist and non-Buddhist. Maha Prajna Paramita, the great perfection of wisdom. <clears throat> and so when we chant that, we're, we're invoking, we're invoking all of these Buddhas. We're inviting them into the room. And it's really an invitation they don't need, right? Because they're here, they're always here. All those beings who have turned toward awakening, towards clarity and kindness and liberation. And I've been making that a, a, a more deliberate part of my own liturgy each morning to, to remember, to bring together and to acknowledge and offer reverence and gratitude for all of these many beings. And I ask them, I do ask them for help and protection and they respond. They've never yet failed to respond. It's really kind of incredible. You know, someone once said to me, you know, you, you have a guardian angel. And I said, no, I have many. I have many guardians who guide and protect me. And they also kick me in the butt once in a while but lovingly. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is really the, uh, the, the trajectory of practice. You know, how, how the spiritual life is lived in a person you know, what you could call the journey to awakening, which, you know, of course, is never linear. And so even, you know, the way that I'm going to speak about it, just please remember it's, it's, um, I was going to say a spiral, but it's 
I think a little more complicated than that. But, you know, in general, you can say we, we do kind of move through certain stages. And you think of the three vehicles, the Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. And it's a simplification to talk of it this way, because you can really take each, each of these and, and um, take it to its fruition, to its end, and have it be complete. But at the same time, there is something, you know, in each one that, that, is, um, that is highlighted, that I think it's helpful. And so in the beginning, you know, in the Theravada stage, it's really about renunciation. You know, there's so much emphasis, there's so much work that goes into renouncing, you know, and we've talked about this quite a bit together, you know, in that moment where a disturbing emotion arises and it's that moment of just stopping, reminding yourself, I don't need to put this out. And in the beginning, you know, maybe we come to practice because we're struggling in some way. And we've heard that Zen or Buddhism is going to help us, right? It's going to give us a way to quiet down, see more clearly, work with difficult situations, you know, difficult people, including this one. And so you receive instruction. This is how you place your body. This is what you do with your mind. You're told to count your breath to follow your breath, to repeat a mudra. You're told you're going to practice concentration, right? The ability to hone in on one thing, the sharpening factor of mind. You're told you're going to cultivate mindfulness, the ability to see, to remember the seeing factor. And then you're encouraged to let go of distracting thoughts, of disturbing emotions, so that your mind can be open and stable. That's equanimity, the balancing factor. And so you take your seat, you quiet down, you turn to your breath, and all hell breaks loose. And how is that? How is it that something so simple, following your breath, can be so incredibly hard. How come your mind is so noisy, so big, that incessant dialogue, so loud? And it can be discouraging, right, in the beginning to realize how distracted we are most of the time, how divided our attention. Why do we think we are so tired most of the time? So if we want to gain clarity, you know, we, we, we have to work hard. So there's a lot of effort, as I said in the beginning. You know, we have to be willing to set time aside, to sit, to work at seeing a thought, letting it go, coming back. But also to discern, is this a thought I need to pick up or a thought I need to put down? Right, I've said many times before, you, you, you don't want to leapfrog over something that needs to be looked at. So we have to move slowly, carefully. We have to give each thing its due, right? So we can't just jump over uh, anger to forgiveness, over sadness to joy. And we don't, you know, we don't have to because 
you know, with each moment, when we do give each moment, each feeling, it's thought, each thought, it's time and it's place, we can see, you know, with time, we, we begin to see, we can hold this. I can feel this. I can have this. And then we can ask ourselves, okay, now how do I work with this skillfully, right? So we don't have to push it away. So even the, the, the word renounce is tricky because it, it may sound as if, you know, we're saying, well, in a way we are, we're saying not this, not this, not this. So I can turn to this. But I think it's really important to, to, to do that carefully so that the not this is not a negation. It's not a suppression. And so it's a process, right? We try and we fail and we falter and we fall. And then the more we do it, you know, it gets just a little bit easier. And so I think of this, you know, this stage is really one of, of simplification, you know, just paring down. And then you begin to integrate, right? Now as you, you move into, let's say, Mahayana stage, and you begin to integrate, you know, life and practice, samsara and nirvana you start to realize, oh, you know, it's not that one day I'm going to become this super being and I'll never make mistakes again and I'll never hurt myself or others again. I won't have blind spots because I will be free. And there might be, there might be people who are like that, you know, who are fully enlightened. But I think, you know, most of us are going to, to continue to meet life in all of its complexity and in all of our complexity. And perhaps, you know, we'll, we'll continue to struggle. But we just have so many more tools to do that with, right? And so practice becomes a little more normal, you know, a little more ordinary. It's not a big deal that you're sitting half an hour or an hour or two hours or five hours a day. It's not a big deal that you're working with koans or you're studying the precepts or you're reading the sutras. It's not a big deal that you wear a raksu. Because it's just, you know, you realize, well, this is just a reminder. I said, okay, I want to live my life in this way. Am I doing it? Yes. How? How am I doing it? No. Why not? What is in the way? And what do I need to do to, to clear the path? So, you know, you see this, I mean, it's very ordinary. It's very, it's very practical. And it's not very glamorous, actually. A lot of the time, it's not very glamorous. Some of you have heard this story before, but I, <laughs> I love this story. My father um, told it to me. He's in Mexico. And he's with his um, partner at the time, because they, they weren't married. Um, waiting for a friend. They're going to go to a wedding together. And um, they're sitting at a restaurant. And actually, my dad's partner is with her friend. And so there's two women and my father. And the two women, you know, they're just talking, talking to Mexican women, you know, having a good time. My father is very quiet. So he's just, you know, being there. And he's, he's facing the ocean. They're, they're sitting at, outside at a restaurant and they're facing the ocean. And so my father is, is, is looking out at the ocean and just really enjoying, you know, being there. 
and he sails. He has sailed, um, you know, just small sailboats his whole life. And so he notices a sail in the distance. And so he starts following it and he's watching it. And um, as it gets just a little bit closer, you know, he can start to distinguish the color and kind of the size and he realizes it's just, it's a windsurfer. And as they get a little bit closer, he sees they're actually, they're very skilled. You know, they they're, they're really know how to navigate the, the, with the currents. And so now he's really paying attention to them. A few more minutes pass, the figure gets a little bit closer and he realizes, oh, it's actually a woman who's, who's surfing. So, you know, he's, he, keeps, he keeps watching. They get a little bit closer and he realizes not only is it a woman, she's wearing an evening dress. She gets a little bit closer. She's wearing high heels. She is all made up. She is completely, you know, decked out for, you know, she's wearing like evening wear, evening dress. And my dad is now, you know, <laughs> uh, watching quite interesting, you know, interested in what is happening. She comes close. She comes on the beach without even, you know, just, just like sails onto the sand, steps off in her, on her high heels and starts walking up the, the beach. Turns out it's the friend <laughs> they were waiting for. She's going to go to the wedding with them. And my dad says, you know, at the end, and she was also a pretty good dancer. <laughs> and when he told me that story, I had this image of the woman in my mind. And to me, I mean, it was perfect. I, I love James Bond movies. Chauvinism aside, I love James Bond movies. And I thought, okay, but here's a female James Bond. That's who I wanted to be, you know, my whole life. I'm just going to, and, and when I got to the Dharma, it wasn't, it didn't really change that much. You know, I'm just going to cut off my delusions at the root. I'm going to save all beings and not a hair out of place as I do all of that. It's not like that. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. It's not like that. So you begin to see in this stage, it's just this, right? I mean, the, the, what encapsulates Zen, and I've said before, what encapsulates 2,500 years of history of teaching in Buddhism, just this. Very plain, very simple. But not because you're making it so at this point but because you see, oh, that's really how it is. And there's still effort, but there's a lot less than in the beginning, you know, because practice and life are becoming more integrated. And so there is still practice. I mean, there is formal practice. You know, sometimes people say, you know, I'm mindful throughout the day, and that's great, but it's not the same as really setting time aside, dedicated time, a cathedral in time, a temple in time, to cultivate that concentration and mindfulness and equanimity and to look at your body and your feelings, your thoughts, your mind, to make space for yourself and others in your mind. You know, I wrote an article in the, the Foreign Measurables a couple of years ago in that quote by Louis 
Massignon, you know, to make place for others in your mind. And he called this the science of compassion. You know, that you're not just putting yourself in another's shoes, but, but that you're really bringing them into your mind, your being. Right? So if in the beginning, practice is quite self-focused, as it needs to be. You know, now you're beginning to, to be able to raise your head and realize, oh, I mean, there, there's a whole world out there. So maybe I'm doing a little bit better. Maybe I'm not suffering as much as I was in the beginning, but other people are. What can I do about this? And, you know, this making space is um, both, both um, actually making space and then, you know, more metaphysical, if you will. And I, and I was doing that. I was doing that quite deliberately these past couple of weeks. You know, I was sitting. I was sitting every morning and most evenings. But I was also just doing a lot of laying around and, and sitting on the couch, just reflecting, not in any directed way, but just looking, just looking at myself, looking at my life, pondering. And I've, I've, I have to admit, I've never done that much. I never felt I had the time. Or I never thought that was a good way to spend the time that I did have, right? Because there was always so much to do, so much to accomplish. But here, you know, I was trying, I was trying to, to you know, break up that constraint and, and to look at the whole picture in, in, a, in a, you know, we, we say when we're sitting, it's a soft gaze, right? In a relaxed way. So it, there's not this, this um, trying to analyze, you know, to penetrate something, but to really just hold something in that space. So this, this stage, I feel, is a little more like deconstructing. It's seeing what, what the justice is. You know, and you don't need, you know, two weeks to do this, like five minutes here, ten minutes there, where you're just looking. And then you begin to see that this is also that. So you enter the stage where you're really transmuting energy, the Vajrayana stage of practice. So when you really do transform anger into compassion, ignorance into wisdom, greed into generosity, right? Without leapfrogging, without avoiding, because you see, you don't have to. So I said before, you don't have to avoid. And here you no longer have to renounce anger. You can see into it directly. You're free not from it, but you're free within it. And so this is a stage of indestructible liberation. You, you're no longer depending so much on the, the props, right? To remind you that you need to contain your anger. And as I said, you know, you, you're seeing through it, so you're not bound by it. You know, but be careful. This isn't, this isn't James Bond land either. Indestructible doesn't mean permanent, because nothing is permanent. And so maybe in a single day, I'm going to move through all three. I'm going to have to, and let me use another example that's not anger. Let me, um, I need to refrain from my impatience. Then I need to practice patience. And then I see through the nature 
of impatience, the nature of the one who feels it, the nature of time, and what we call waiting. And I realized there is no problem. There never was a problem other than the one I created in my mind. And this is very important to understand. Conflict is created. The conflict we see in ourselves, the conflict we see in the world, we created. And I've said this many times before, but I don't think you can say it enough. Life doesn't have to be this hard, this painful, this contentious. I mean, that is Buddhism in a nutshell, the, the unmaking of our pain. And really, the beauty I feel of the teaching is that all of the sutras, all of the commentaries, all of the chants, all the meditation techniques, all of the liturgy, you know, they are profound and utterly practical because they are telling you what to do, how to work with your neighbor dumping snow on your yard when your mother is sick and you're struggling to, to juggle, you know, you're, you're juggling you know, her care in your life. When your job is draining you and you don't know, do I stay or is it time to leave? And of course, the sutras, the teachings don't tell you directly, but they're showing you, where they're guiding us how to listen, how to listen to ourselves to our own wisdom, which is always present, always clear. But we have to be quiet enough so we can hear it. And so these teachings are really showing you how to learn from the, the best teacher you'll ever have, which is you, nobody else. Let me end with this poem by the inimitable Mary Oliver. It's called The Other Kingdoms. Consider the other kingdoms. The trees, for example, with their mellow-sounding titles, oak, aspen, willow. Or the snow, for which the peoples of the north have dozens of words to describe its different arrivals. Or the creatures, with their thick fur, their shy and wordless gaze, their infallible sense of what their lives are meant to be. Thus the world grows rich, grows wild, and you too grow rich, grow sweetly wild, as you too were born to be. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.